Holy cow, just talked to Scott Deluzio, author of Surviving Son and the host of the Drive On Podcast. Surviving Son is a compelling true story that provides the reader with an insight into the life of a combat infantryman who fought in Afghanistan at the same time as his younger brother, Stephen, who was killed in action just miles away. I just finished the audiobook recently read by Scott himself, which gives it that personal touch. And it's a story that was incredibly inspiring, touched my heart, and is something that I will never, ever forget. I also went the extra mile on survivingsunbook.com where you can get a signed copy. Scott, this is going on my bookshelf at work. Scott's brother, Stephen Deluzio, died on August 22nd, 2010, fighting for his country. To honor Steven Deluzio's legacy, we are going to release the interview that I have with Scott tonight on the Hero Front podcast on that anniversary. So that talk will come out this August 22nd in dedication to Steven. So what I love about Scott, his story, his book, and his podcast was that he took something that would break most people. Not only did he lose his brother, but he almost lost his own life. Uh, while in Afghanistan. So his family actually almost lost both of their sons uh, in that deployment. And although Scott has gone through some really hard times, he's completely transparent about it in his book in absolutely incredible detail where you feel like you're just sitting right next to him uh, on his journey, just rooting for him from the sidelines. But how Scott was able to take this tragedy and over the years use it as a platform for veterans for mental health to honor his brother's legacy and to still be there for veterans and showing us that there is life after ptsd that you can be happy go to survivingsunbook.com get your copy and you can look forward to my interview with scott on august 22nd take care What book are you reading today? Uh, you know what? I actually just recently reread a book. Uh, I have it here somewhere. Uh, it's a book by, I believe, a someone someone else who you know, um, who's is a Coast Guard veteran, uh, Ashley Leppert. Um, her book, The Hurricane Within. Um, she re-released it and i was fortunate enough to be able to provide an endorsement uh for her on on that book and uh so i i she sent me a copy of that i I, and i wanted to reread that book because it was just an incredible read and uh yeah so i just got done with that not too long ago um and and i i really highly recommend that book to anyone out there who's who's listening it's really an incredible eye-opening story into what the coast guard does in the various rescue operations that they do uh natural disasters uh, boating accidents things like that um they they do so much that it's sort of behind the scenes and we don't really see it and i know a lot of times in the military community we give the coast guard a lot of crap but uh, you know they they really do a lot of stuff for the people back home, and and it's important work. So uh, it's a great book. Uh, it's called The Hurricane Within. Um, that I'd highly recommend that to anyone out there listening. Absolutely. So did you you saw my picture with her? 
I did. Yeah, I saw that. That's that's why that's why I had a feeling you you knew who who that who I was talking about. But uh, but yeah, yeah. she's an incredible incredible person. I've had her on the podcast a couple times now. Yes, I I, I had a feeling. Uh, you two had a kind of a similar ending to, in your books, um, where you both meet Donald Trump, and you both are extremely motivated by that experience to kind of take it to the next level, take the message to the next level. So. Yeah, your your ending really reminded me too of how her you know her book closed out, um, but I got to go to Black Rifle Coffee and team with them and interview Ashley in person. I have all in person stuff, and she lives here in Florida, so I got to to hang out with her for an evening. So it was it was amazing. That episode comes out like end of this month actually, so be on the lookout cool. for that. Um, there's a lot of really cool people here in Florida, a lot of veterans, really inter- with really interesting stories. So. I'm just going to keep keep on keeping on with the in-person ones. They're, they're an absolute blast. And if I'm ever in yeah. Arizona, because there's a lot of TDYs out there, I'll make sure to bring my stuff so we can we can link up since you're so close to Luke. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd love to do that. And, uh, you know, we can even we can record an episode in person. We can do do all sorts of stuff. That would be great. So absolutely. And then I, I did see your <clears throat> like your quote, like your thoughts on her book on the back of her book. And I was like, what? Yeah. Holy cow. Like this is like right after like I linked up with you. So I was like, what are the chances I would just like see your name like right after that? Like yeah, that really tripped thing, me out. One thing I've noticed in the, this podcasting and everything that we've been doing, uh, you know, over the last few years is that the veteran community is really tight and it, it's actually kind of a small world. As many people as there are in there, um, everyone starts to blend together and they start to know each other and these connections they, they form like a, a solid web and we all just like kind of branch out and, and we'll pull whoever in, like I'll, I'll pull you into my network. I'll pull Ashley into my network and, and we're, we're going to help each other out no matter what. And, and so, uh, you know, th- it's just a lot of good stuff going on. So yeah, it's a, it's a small world, but it, it's awesome. That's what I love about it too. I, I, you know, for one podcasting, the community is already great. Um, and then on top of that veterans, my theory is we, we're always on the move. So we form relationships quickly. We're a bit more transparent than yeah. a civilian counterpart would because we know that time is limited. So might as well just put it out there and get to know each other and, and have a good time. So I think that's what makes veterans good podcasters, to be honest. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, you, some of these conversations that I've had on my podcast have been uh, just real you know, maybe half hour, 45 minute conversations, real, real short, brief conversations. But at the end of the conversation, I feel like I, I've known the person for years. Right. And, and so it's, it's pretty incredible. It is. And I wanted to recommend this book to you just while I, I had your ear here. And it's called The Soldier's Guide to PTSD by Virginia Cruz. Yes. Is, do you know who that is? I do. I've had her on my podcast oh, as well. Okay. You've and already talked to her. <laughs> it, it, yes, I have, but it's also, it's an incredible read. Um, and, and I, I think it's a, a great book for people who are going through a PTSD. I, I got some good insights for myself out of that book. Um, just kind of secondary because I, I was having her on the podcast. I wanted to read, read through the book and, uh, you know, I dealt with PTSD myself and, and reading through that book helped me have a few light bulb moments like, oh man, this is what I've been going through this whole time and didn't even realize it. And, and this, this helped me out. So uh, yeah, that's another great one for anyone out there struggling with uh, PTSD. Definitely. Yeah. She was, she's incredible. All right. Question number two, if your book became a movie, 
what and you could pick any actor for you and Steven. What would the two actors be? Okay, so this question has come up before, and there there's an app out there, and I forget what it's called now, but it's what celebrity do you look like? And you upload a picture of yourself or you know somebody else or whatever, and, and it pops out a celebrity. And so you were saying earlier how my voice sounds a whole lot older than I look. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> my God, the people who it was spitting out for me were these like 75, 80 year old people. And I was like, Jesus Christ, I, I can't catch a break here. Like, I'm not going to be having these 80 year old guys playing me in, in a war movie or whatever, you know, and but all the guys who like I put my brother's picture in there um, and granted, it's like Tom Cruise. And you're like, what? The-? It, yeah, I, it was like <laughs> these young, handsome looking guys. And I'm like, geez, man, I, I can't catch a break. So I don't know. I, 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 I kind of gave up on the idea of a movie. after. <laughs> so it's like no one no one's going to. But if you could like, pick. You, if anyone, I could pick literally any celebrity. Oh gosh. Uh, man. Well, you know, honestly, I don't know if it would matter so much who the person was. Um, it would have to be uh, someone who kind of fit my character uh, as far as my mannerisms, my personality, that, that type of thing. And, and who could, uh, could at least play that role um and i don't know who that is um you know specifically um but I'd, I'd like it to that person to be able to capture uh like the actual emotions that were going through during uh you know the the stuff that i talk about in the book the, right. uh, the combat scenes the um you know the loss of my brother the um you know the homecoming and all that kind of stuff i I'd, I'd like someone to actually be able to capture that and and i, I think i that's a probably a cop out answer because I haven't actually given the name, but I, I have to I have to think about that a little bit more yeah. and come up with some names for that. Okay, when you start when you watch movies, I want you to just keep thinking about that. I will. And, and I get will. back to me. Just shoot me a message. <laughs> okay. Uh, third question: What is a quote that you live by? Oh man! So this is something I say to my kids all the time. And it's something I got from the military. Um, It's the uh, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And I I have to remind myself of that all the time. And the reason why, and my kids as well, uh, the reason why is because sometimes we just try to rush through things to just knock it out, get it done or whatever. But then when you do that, you end up making mistakes. You get sloppy, you don't do things the right way and you end up having to go back do it over again, ends up taking you twice as long or even longer than it would have taken you to begin with if you just kind of slowed down and did it the right way the first time. And I tell this to my kids with their schoolwork, with um, uh, different chores that they're doing, uh, because when they they go up to their rooms and they they said, they, they oh yeah, I cleaned my room, you know, and they did a half-assed job. And then they, they come back, they come back downstairs hoping to be able to, you know, watch some tv or go play outside or whatever and we go in the room and it's still a a disaster it's like well no you didn't do this if you just slowed down did it the right way the first time you wouldn't be back up here cleaning it now the second time 
and you'd be able to go out and play with your friends or do whatever it is that, that you wanted to do that was was making you rush through this so so quickly. So, um, you know, it, it, that's something that I've, uh, from the first time I heard it, it just kind of clicked with me and it made sense. And I, I just absolutely love that, that saying. Definitely. And I, <clears throat> I actually just heard it not too long ago. A few months ago, I went to Camp Bullis, which it's an army base. So you may have heard of it. It's in San Antonio. Um, kind of in the middle of nowhere where they can just blow stuff up. And uh, that's where the combat medic schools are. And so my job is public health. So here it's like audiograms, food inspections, deployment, in processing and out processing, uh, COVID ops, you know, disease stuff, mosquito trapping. Um, and in a deployed environment, a lot of that's, you know, outside the wire. You know, our job is actually kind of dangerous outside the wire. So I had to go to this school and it was an absolute blast, absolute blast. But there, there's a lot of like reenactments there to like save people. And they, mm -hmm. you know, they're screaming at you, making all these noises and explosions are going off. And, you know, you got your, you have tourniquets and things like that. And they use that quote over and over again. And that that's how they want your head to be as you try to save someone with a tourniquet while complete chaos is going on around you. Cause you only have that one you know, shot to get it on their right and right. to potentially save that person's life. So it's funny that you said that quote, cause it was literally repeating in my head over and over as I was trying to like, keep my cool while these people were screaming in my face. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing is if you can just slow down and think about what you're doing with a clear mind, block out all that other crap, the screaming, the explosions, the, the noise, that the, the distractions that's really what they are they're distractions they're trying to distract you in, in a course like that they they want you to learn how to work through those distractions and just get over it and if you can do that if you can just focus on the task at hand putting that tourniquet on uh, whatever it is that you're trying and to then do pull, right? yeah pulling them out of the you got to pull them out after that so yeah yeah if you can just focus on that, slow down, do what you're supposed to do, make sure it's on tight. So that way, when you're pulling the person out of there, it doesn't slip loose or anything like that, right? You, you focus on the thing that you're supposed to do. None of that other noise matters. That's just, that's just, uh, you know, something else that's going on. Just focus on, right. on the here and now, the, this thing that's going on right now. And, and that's, that's how you get the job done. Definitely. And, and, you know, you've been to training before you're we like, come on, this is, what are we doing? But this yeah. training, I was like, I actually felt prepared. Like by the end of that course, I was like, I can do this. So they, they're really doing a great job out there. Yeah. Um, and then, so I asked the three questions, but I like to ask veterans this specific question at the, uh, as a bonus question, what is your proudest army moment? Um, wow. That's, that's a tough one. Um, I think for me, uh, just being able to serve my country, deploying to Afghanistan, um, you know, I, I joined after 9-11. I knew we were at war. I joined uh, as an infantryman. I knew at some point I was probably going to be deployed. And I wanted that. At, at some point, I wanted to, to go overseas and deploy to support my country. And when I had that ability to do that, and I, I went to Afghanistan and was able to fight for our country, I that to me was like one of the proudest things uh, 
that I I could have done because it it meant a lot to be able to give back to the country that's given me so much, uh, so many opportunities, so many different um, freedoms and, and things like that. I, I felt like the, that need to give back was there. And, um, you know, it, it meant a lot to me to be able to go off and serve that, that way. Definitely. And, <clears throat> you know, props to you and your brother, because I mean, y'all were extremely talented, driven, smart individuals like you. You could have been officers if you wanted, you know what I mean? Like the purpose meant more to you than your own career, you know, your own finances, your own plan, the purpose of serving and and doing what you thought was right and honorable over all other things. I thought that was incredible. Cause like you, I've met a lot of, you know, great airmen, obviously I've met a lot of selfish ones too. Um, that can be a, a bit disheartening. So you and your brother, I mean, in all honesty, we're overqualified. If, if I'm being honest, sure, you, you're not the average person that's joining. You're a, you're much above average with with your credentials, your school, but you still, you know, took that job, wanting to serve your country in the best way you could. And I was just absolutely blown away by by that service before self. I I really that truly touched my heart. Yeah, and honestly, when I joined. It was so my brother joined first um, and he enlisted. He he was still in college when he joined. Um, and so he he enlisted. And a short time after he joined, I heard this report in the news that the military was struggling to meet their recruiting numbers. They needed, um, you know, the the ground troops, the, the infantry, the you know combat arms uh, type folks. And when I heard that they're struggling to meet their recruiting numbers, this was now maybe three or four years after 9-11, it started to piss me off. I was like, where are all these people who, you know, during 9-11, they, they were ready to move mountains to go kick some ass and, and fight, get some payback, right? And I was like, where are all these people? And then I realized that I was one of those people that at that time I wanted to do something. And, and then now three, four years later, I still hadn't done anything for serving my country or, or anything like that. So I was like, you know what? I'm young enough. I'm fit enough. I'm, I'm perfectly capable. So why not me? Why why don't I, I join uh, this way? And um, the one thing I, I didn't want to do is have my service in any way um, outshine my brothers. I didn't want to join as an officer and outrank him and make him feel like he was, you know, this big when I'm, you know, the, the bigger, you know, more higher ranking uh, brother or anything like that. I, I didn't want that for him. And so I decided to enlist. Um, and, and he, he was enlisted um, with my college degree. I, I started off as an E4. Um, he was an E4 by the time I graduated basic training. So basically our entire military career, we stayed at just about the same rank all the way throughout. So, um, you know, it just, it just worked out that way. Um, but I, I never really wanted to outrank him anyway. So, um, just so happened when, when he got his E5, I, I it was right around the same time. I think maybe within a month or so I got mine and, um, you know, it, it just happened to work out that way. So, so yeah, no, I, I appreciate, uh, you know, what you said about that, but, but it was, um, it was really, not about the rank it, for me. I, I didn't care, you know, how high of a rank I got. I didn't care 
how much money I made. I mean, it, I was a National Guard soldier, so I wasn't really doing it for the money. You know, it, it, you, you do one week in a month and two weeks a year. It's, you know, it's a little bit extra. It's like gas money for, for the month, you know. Um, right. Although these days, gas money is, you know, a pretty big deal. But, right. yeah. <laughs> but back then, it was not quite as big a deal as it is now. But um, but anyways, it, it was it was not about any of that. It was really about serving. And uh, that that's was the most important thing for me. <clears throat> and so if I'm remembering right, Stephen was your younger brother, correct? That's correct. Yeah. But he joined before you joined. So you're the older brother joining after him. How, yeah. how was that dynamic? Like how was, was he, was he someone like, did you have one of those mutual relationships where although you were the older brother, you both looked up to each other in a way? Well, it was, it's kind of funny. So we, we both were raised in a very patriotic family. Uh, we, we grew up respecting the military and uh, first responders, police, fire, EMS, all, all those people. Because we know that uh, everyone who puts a uniform on, no matter what the uniform is, they, they're doing something bigger than themselves. They're serving their community, they're serving their country, and willing to sacrifice a part of themselves or the entire part of themselves for other people. And so we always had that respect for the military, um, especially. And growing up, I was always the older brother, the, you know, the one who, you know, when we would roughhouse, I usually would beat up my brother when, when he was, he was little. Um, I remember I used to do this thing where, where I'd, we'd get into a little scuffle and, and I'd bend over like at the waist and he'd jump on my back, but he was light enough that I was able to, and he'd kind of like bear hug me around my neck or whatever. And he was light enough. I was able to stand up and just kind of like run backwards into a wall. And he never really got that through his head that I don't do that anymore. Cause he's going to, he's going to do this to me. Right. Um, but, but I would do that all the time. It was like my, I don't know, my signature move. If I was a wrestler or something, <laughs> just like right. knock him into a wall. And, uh, and so, so we always had that, that kind of dynamic growing up. Um, you know, we, we would fight like any siblings do, but we, we did respect each other. Um, but when he joined, um, it was like a, a flip of the switch because I all of a sudden started looking up to him the way I always looked up to the military and police officers and, and things like that growing up. Uh, I always looked up to those, those people. And now all of a sudden he was one of those people. And I was like, holy crap, I am super proud of him for making this decision. Uh, I'm so like in awe of, of him for, for doing this. And so, uh, you know, when, he went through basic training. He started going to his, his drills and everything like that, the, the training that he had to do. Um, I started to learn a little bit about what it meant to be in the military and the National Guard in particular, because that's where he joined. And so I knew a little bit about that just through talking to him, hearing his stories. And uh, I got to learn about uh, what, it, what it would be like in, in an when it came time for me to decide whether or not I wanted to uh, join the military, um, I said, well, if he could do it, there's, there's no way I'm going to, you know, let him one up me. I'm going to, I'm going to be able right. to do it too. So, um, you know, so, it, but it was, it was really, um, it was really a proud moment when he joined for me. It, it was one of those things where uh, I, I probably got annoying talking to my coworkers or, you know, other, other people, just because I, I was just talking about it all the time, uh, you know, how he joined and how proud of him I was and everything like that. So it, it was, 
it was interesting, but it, but it was a, it was a cool thing to happen that way. Yeah. I, I love that. You, you looked up to your little brother. Like I, it was such an honorable thing in your mind. Like I, I saw that I, I, you know, as I'm reading it, I'm like, wow, he's like, like his, it, it was like, he came back a different person, you know, yeah. he had this like aura about him almost. And, and you, and you had this direct insight um, to the army. You could ask all the questions you want. And, and, and then you also got to see the before and after, you know, mm-hmm. you saw before he left and you saw when he was getting back from training, but cool. Scott, I was hoping that, you know, we know that you and your brother, you joined, you were both incredible patriots to begin with. You both joined, you both went through all the training and you both went to Afghanistan. And then one of your chapters is just straight up the date, August 22nd, 2010. And I was hoping you could run us through that day. Yeah, sure. So uh, that day for me uh, started off um, uh, basically on top of a mountain uh, in Afghanistan. Um, We flew out um, late the night before um, under the cover of darkness. We were on uh, Chinooks and we landed on top of this mountain. Um, Our our mission was to go down to this village once when uh, daylight broke. Um, We were were doing a, a joint mission with the Afghan army. And we were going through to look for uh, various Taliban activity. They, they had suspected that someone had stolen some Afghan army uniforms. So we're going through to look for things like that, weapons, uh, other, uh, you know, maybe bomb making materials, things like that in, in this village. Um, but we had to wait for first light because the Afghan army at the time didn't have any night vision capabilities. So, um, you know, going down a uh, jagged mountainside in Afghanistan in the middle of the night, pitch black would be uh, dangerous, if not impossible for some of them to do uh, without the night vision. So, um, so we waited and uh, went down, we conducted our our mission through this village, found a few things, some uniforms, which we burned on the spot. We found uh, a few weapons, not, not much. um, And we, we had an EOD guy there who, strapped some explosives to them, blew them up, and those things became pretty much useless. Um, And uh, the mission went off, you know, exactly as we planned, which is kind of, kind of strange, you know, when you're dealing with a joint operation like that, especially with the Afghan army, um, you you never know what you're going to get, because the level of training that they have is uh, varied and uh, usually not all that good. Um, So, uh, we were we were actually pretty fortunate that it went off uh, pretty well for us. Um, and as we were kind of wrapping up in the village, we were heading back up the mountain. Um, I got a call on the radio saying that the commanding officer was looking for me. And and again, I, I was just an E5 at the time. And so the commanding officer looking for me, it was like, okay, I either did something really incredibly good or I screwed something up royally. Like this Either is, way, you're, this that's anxiety good... fuel huge, huge. Yeah. Big time. Um, and I was, I was thinking through the day, I was like, okay, I didn't do anything that great. Like I'm not getting any medals today for the, the work that I did. So, um, yeah, I can't, couldn't think of any of the good things. So it, I, my head was just going to the, all the bad things. And so I work my way back up the mountain and I link up with the commanding officer, uh, and he tells me to go off to the side, kind of away from everybody else. There's, there was some trees and some rocks and stuff that kind of separated us from, from the rest of the group. And he told me to take a knee 
and he had some uh, some stuff that he needed to tell me. And so I'm like, okay, well, I didn't screw up because he would have been chewing me out already. So it had to be something else bad. And so I was thinking, okay, maybe I got a Red Cross message from back home, maybe a you know a family member passed away or something like that. I, I didn't know what had happened, but um, you know my mind started going that direction. Um, but he told me that my, my brother's unit had been ambushed and that he had gotten hit in that ambush. And up until that point, I never even considered the fact that my brother could be injured or killed in action or anything like that. It's almost like that was like not even a possibility in your brain. Like y'all were both there to do a mission. Y'all are both going to yeah. get back. And there was no exactly. other, there, your, your mind couldn't even see that other possibility. No, it, it couldn't. Uh, honestly, I, I think to me, that possibility was just something that you hear about other people or happening to other people. Uh, you know, you hear about it in the news when, when there's a fallen soldier or something it, that that's, that's somebody else. That's not me. That's not my family. Um, and so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. That I didn't even comprehend that that's something that could happen. And, um, and so I started thinking logistics, like going into big brother mode, like, how do I help him? How do I, you know, even if it's nothing more than just being there for moral support, how do I get to him? Um, you know, if he needs blood or something like that, like, you know, I, I can donate some blood to him. I can, uh, you know, do whatever I can do to, to help him out. Um, but the committing officer, he looked at me, uh, you know, a little strange and he was like, I don't think you quite understand what I'm telling you that he's, he's been killed. And that was like a punch in the gut. It just sucked the air right out of me. It was like, man, it, it was like the worst possible news that he could have told me uh, at that point. And it took me a while to actually just grasp what he, what he was saying, because that was such a uh, non-existent possibility in my mind that it just, to me, it didn't even make sense that my brother wouldn't be here, uh, that, that he was gone. Yeah. Like there's, you never ever pictured or saw a world that he didn't live in. It, it, that's exactly right. And, you know, he was engaged to be married, uh, about a year after he was killed. He, he had a wedding date planned already. And, um, you know, he was an uncle to, to my, my son, my firstborn son, he was a godfather to him as well. And it was just like, that's just what life is going to have for us. Like he's going to come home. He's going to get married. He's, he's going to continue his, his life. He's going to build a family, have kids of his own. He's going to go back to his career and everything. He's like, that's just what's going to happen. And now I'm having to wrap my head around the fact that no, none of this is going to happen. He's not coming home. Uh, he's, he, he's not going to get married. He's not going to be there. Uh, my kids will never get to know him. Um, you know, other than through stories and things like that, but they'll never get to spend time with him and stuff. And, and that just blew me away. It just was such a, such a terrible thing to, to think about. Um, and so when, when I found out about this, I, I was obviously in a pretty bad place uh, mentally. I was, I was sad. I was grieving. Um, I also was carrying a loaded rifle. And so my, commanding officer naturally was very concerned that, you know, I might hurt myself or others or, or something like that. So uh, he had a couple other soldiers come and sit with me to just make sure that I was okay. And that, um, you know, I wasn't going to lose it or whatever. And 
you know, kill myself or somebody else or, or whatever that, um, that the, the grief and the, the anger wouldn't overcome and, and, and cause me to do something stupid like that. So, um, about 20 minutes after finding out that my brother was killed, our, our own unit started taking fire from the, the village that we just came out of. Um, obviously the Afghan army didn't do a great job searching the village for, uh, weapons and, uh, Taliban fighters and things like that. Uh, so we ended up in a firefight. And so now, uh, not only am I grieving the loss of my brother, I'm now having to wrap my head around leading my squad and, uh, fighting back against this attack um it did. that part was so brutal to read yeah because it was like you you just are at probably the lowest moment of your life yeah you can't even comprehend the news that you've been told your mind is racing with thoughts and before you can even come to terms with it these people are trying to kill you you know it's yeah. just like it's just absolutely brutal situation. Like when I, when, when you got to that part, I was just, I like stopped. I was running when I was listening to this part. I like stopped running. Cause I was like, I can't believe that at that point there's, there's people actively trying to now kill him. Like it was just, it was crazy. So what, yeah. what was going through your mind then? Where do you, did you, did you feel anger? Did you feel nothing? Did you feel out of it? Like you know, cause that's two very extreme situations that just happened to you back to back. Yeah. So I felt extreme anger. Like when I'm talking extreme, it was like to the point of almost being homicidal where I just wanted to kill as many of these people as I could. I was so angry at Afghans in general for not being able to take care of their country. Um, and I say this now, um, you know, all these years later, I don't hold any ill will against the people of Afghanistan or, uh, you know, the, anyone like that. Um, uh, the the people who are responsible for my brother's death are not here for me to be mad about anymore anyway. So um, there's no point in holding any kind of resentment or anything. But at the time, I felt so much anger and I wanted, I wanted to take out revenge against anybody that I could, whether they had anything to do with it or not. Um, I, I was extreme, extremely angry at the whole situation, at the whole war in, in Afghanistan, that the, the people who live there couldn't take care of their own country and required people like us and, and like my brother to come there and give his life for what was going on there. And, and just the anger build up inside of me. Um, but I knew that if I let that anger take over and take control uh, of me that I, I would end up snapping and doing something stupid and it would very likely get myself seriously injured or killed uh, as well. And I knew that I couldn't do that uh, to my parents. Uh, I, they just lost a son uh, earlier that day. Um, and it, actually at that point, they didn't even know that they lost a son. I, I, I couldn't possibly let them get a second knock on the door or, or get a knock on the door informing them that both of their, their sons were killed. That, just was not a possibility as far as I was concerned. So uh, I knew I had to keep it together. Um, but also for my wife and my my son, uh, you know, I didn't want my wife to become a widow or my son to grow up without a father. Um, and also the guys that I, I was leading, the squad that I had uh, in front of me, um, I didn't want them to get injured or killed because I did something stupid. Um, and 
you know, how would I be able to tell their families that uh, their loved one wasn't coming home because I was an idiot and I went off and I, I let my emotions get the better of me. Um, you know, that I couldn't do that either. So I said, the best way for me to deal with this right now is to put all my personal stuff behind me, swallow it down, kind of compartmentalize this stuff and say, uh, it's not that I'm not going to deal with the grief and the sadness. I'm just not going to deal with it right now. And I, I box it up, I put it on a shelf, you know, obviously metaphorical uh, shelf. And I said, I just need to focus on the the mission here. And we need to to stop this attack. We need to fight back and do whatever it is that we need to do to make sure that our guys get home safe. And that's exactly what we did. Um, fortunately, during that uh, that attack, no Americans were killed in action. Uh, there there were a few injuries, but they were more like rolled ankles and, and things like that from you know just the uneven terrain and and, and whatnot. So uh, we were very fortunate in in that attack uh, that no Americans were were killed or or seriously injured uh, in that. So um, shortly after that attack, I. I was uh, flown out from that that village and uh, flown up to Bagram Air Base, and that's where basically I started my journey home. Um, but that that day, um, I think to this day still goes down as the absolute worst uh, day in in my life. And um, you know, I've had I've had good days, I've had bad days, um, but nothing compares to that day. Um, and and the loss of, of my brother in that way was, was just so incredibly devastating. Um, not only the, the fact that I was, you know, thousands of miles away from home, but also because I couldn't really talk to anybody back home, uh, after finding out, uh, for, for quite a while, uh, because we had to wait to make sure that my parents had been notified, uh, through, you know, the formal uh, process that, you know, that quote unquote, knock at the door where, where they come and uh, they give that formal notification that, that someone has been killed in action. Um, and so when I got to Bagram, I wanted to call home. I wanted to talk to my, my parents, but they wouldn't allow me to because they quite frankly didn't know whether or not my parents had been notified uh, at that point. And um, just based on the time difference, there really was no way of finding out uh, whether or not my, my parents had been notified. So, um, you know, it was incredibly isolated and lonely. Um, there were other soldiers around me at that time. Um, there were, uh, you know, chaplains and uh, mental health professionals who met with me. I, I met with the brigade uh, leadership, and they were all great uh, people to talk to and everything. But, uh, you know, I, I didn't really know any of them. Uh, I wasn't friends with any of them at that point. Um, I, and it was just a very lonely feeling for me. Uh, like I, yeah. I had nobody in the world to talk to, you know, that's the worst feeling when you're surrounded by people, but never felt so alone due to the situation, you know, no one can relate with you. You don't know anyone. Yeah. And all you want to do is see a familiar face, a family member, a friend, and, uh, yeah. yeah, it's 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 a very debilitating feeling. And I just I felt I felt helpless, you know, for you, because like, you know, you probably spent a lot of your childhood protecting your brother. So there's there's also this sense of like he was taken from you. It's like this helplessness, like I I couldn't 
protect them. You know, I was, so it was, it, it broke my heart. It really did uh, reading that. I'm, I'm, but I'm, I'm very proud of, of Steven and I'm proud of you too, Scott. Um, you two are heroes and I'm, I'm just thankful that you're here to carry on his legacy, tell a story and just be there for, for him, for your family and for veterans. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, that's part of what, why I wanted to write this book. Um, and I, I talk about it in the book, uh, part of my reasoning for writing the book, but, um, you know, one of the big things for me is that, um, when his body was, was, uh, brought home, um, and when I got home, there was, I'll just call it a media circus. There, there were people all over the place and I was in no mood to talk to anybody. I didn't, I didn't want to talk to anybody, but there's a public affairs officer from the army who, uh, who met us at my parents' house and said, you know, it's completely our right to not talk to the, the media if we don't want to. Um, you can go tell them to get lost and they'll, they'll go run a story, but it's not going to be, you know, that story that talks about who my brother was. And that's when it, it really drove home. And it made me realize that this isn't about me and my feelings about telling this story. Uh, it, it's about him. Uh, he's no longer here to tell his story, obviously. Um, and so if I want somebody to know who he was, what kind of sacrifice was made, that type of thing, uh, it kind of falls on me. I kind of have to tell the story. So as much as it is my story in the book, uh, Surviving Son, um, it's also his story. And uh, by writing it in a book format, it's one of those things that will uh, outlive both of us. Um, and, and it will be here for years and years to come. So uh, hopefully people will be able to learn something from uh, the experiences that we've, we've had. Definitely. I think it's always inspiring to see someone take tragedy and turn it into purpose and, and, and inspire others and, and let people know they're not alone. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's beautiful what you've done with the story and with the legacy. Um, Cause you know, a lot of sometimes PTSD, you know, gets the best of us and, and we become a shell of a person and, mm -hmm. and we be, we become hermits and we don't want to come out and talk to anyone. And, and sometimes it's even worse than that. And we lose members to suicide. So yeah. to see someone like you take the tragedy and, and use it to be there for others, I think is beautiful. Yeah. And one of the things that I try to do is live in a way that if he, if my brother, Stephen, if he was able to look down on us and see what's happening present day, uh, I try to live my life in a way that he would be proud of. Um, and I'm not perfect. Nobody is. Uh, I make mistakes. I do the wrong thing. I say the wrong thing. I, uh, you know, that happens all the time. Um, but as long as we're, we're doing things with a, a good heart and that we're, we're honest and open about, uh, you know, the, the struggles that we're going through and we can, uh, work through those things as opposed to just stuffing them down and letting them eat us up inside. Um, I, I think he'll be able to look down and be proud of the things that we're, we're doing. And that's, that's really what I try to do uh, every day. Definitely. <clears throat> and I, I went through a, a time in my life where I was very down, you know, drinking way too much, just, just really just not doing good. Uh, so I've, I've been there and I know you've been there. Um, and there were so many times where like, you weren't proud of yourself and you mentioned that, 
mm-hmm. um, like being that angry at not just the enemy, you know, in Afghanistan, but the the Afghans themselves, the country that this war stole your brother when he was just trying yeah. to help them. Um, that frustration, you know, it, it manifested in many different ways. And um, you and some and it came out in some ugly ways sometimes and you always regretted mm-hmm. it. And I think it's so hard when you when you've seen kind of the evil of humanity and how bad it really can get. It's it's really hard to see the world the same way that you used to. It's almost it like is. there's no going back, you know, once you've seen that side. Um, and so my question to you and, and anyone listening is when you have that that really challenging, that really negative outlook because you've seen the worst in humanity, when you feel like a shell of a person, like what were some of the first steps that you took to kind of get out of that headspace? Yeah, and I dealt with some similar things to what you were talking about. I, I drank too much. I, uh, I wasn't sleeping enough. I was irritated. I was angry. I, I carried that anger with me. Um, I, I would get set off on the littlest of things, small things like my, you know, uh, toddler son who would make a mess or something like that. That's what kids do. Like that, that's just a normal thing that happens. And I, I'd flip out, I'd start screaming and yelling and uh, just all, all these little minor inconveniences in the grand scheme of things I, I'd be flipping out about. And I realized one day that this is not the kind of person I want to be. It's not the kind of husband I want to be. It's not the kind of father I want to be. It's not the kind of coworker, neighbor, or whatever uh, title I had. Uh, It's not not who I want to be. And so I decided I need to talk to somebody. I need to get help because clearly whatever it is that I'm doing is not working. Uh, It's just not. And so I went to the vet center and I met a great counselor there and we talked uh, through some of the issues and he gave me some good advice, good guidance to uh, help me get through uh, some of this, this hard time in my life. And, um, and without that, I I don't know that I would have been able to uh, overcome these things on my own. I think I would have uh, just done the same thing over and over again, not realizing just how detrimental it was to myself. And so through these conversations that I had with uh, this objective third-party person uh, was, was able to help me see how the stuff that I was doing wasn't helpful. It wasn't moving me in the right direction. Uh, if anything, it was moving me in the wrong direction and it was making things worse for uh, for me, for my family, for basically everything in my life, it was just making things worse. And so, um, you know, for me, the very first thing that I did was just admitting that this is not the type of person I want to be. And I need help to fix that, to get to the point where I am a better person. And I am the type of person that I would like to be, that I I could be proud of being. And, um, and also realizing that it's okay to be a work in progress. Um, You know, I, I'm not ashamed to admit that even now, about 12 years after getting back from Afghanistan, I still go to uh, counseling for uh, my PTSD and other issues that I, I've been going through. Um, I'm, I am a work in progress. I, I'm not perfect. Uh, like I said before, nobody is. Um, and all I could do is just continue to strive towards 
a better version of myself, knowing that I'll never hit that perfect status, but that's okay. Definitely. You hit a, a, a bunch of lessons in there, you know, not chasing perfection, having that high expectation of ourselves, understanding that we're human, understanding that, you know, what you went through was real and that it's okay to ask for help. And, and there's power in that there's power in sharing your story. Um, being able to articulate it, think through it and, mm -hmm. and, and really open your heart to someone trying to help you. So it's almost like we want to hide it and bottle it down, but it's going to come out in one way or another. And so it's just more empowering and more healthy to choose the way in which it comes out. Yeah. Like with you, it was exactly. therapy and also uh, art, like, you know, it's the, art like help change you I, I i love that how you got into drawing and painting are, are those your is that your art in the background it is yeah so the stuff wow. over my my shoulder here th those are mine um i have a few other things over here that are not necessarily mine but they're uh stuff that have been sent to me as gifts and and whatnot so um but yeah the, the four that you see over on this wall over my shoulder are are mine and uh it's it's one of those things for me where when I'm painting something, I just sort of get lost in what I'm doing. Like it, uh, you, you hear about people talking about different grounding techniques and, and getting you to focus on uh, the present moment. And when I'm painting, I find that I am, uh, or, or any sort of artwork that I'm doing, uh, I find that I'm just lost in the moment. And, and I'm just so focused on the here and now that none of the other problems in the world really seem to bother me. Um, you know, it, it's almost like I'm in a different world, like a, just like a, another dimension where, where the only thing that matters is what's going on on the piece of paper or the canvas or whatever that I'm, I'm working on. And uh, it, actually a, a little while ago, my, uh, I was doing just some painting with my kids. And after we were done, my wife looked at me and she goes, you actually seem like you're really happy while you're doing that. And I was like, you know what? I, I actually was happy while I was doing that. And, and it was an enjoyable time. Um, and so, you know, for her to, to say that to me, it was eye opening in that, you know, well, am I not happy more often? And, and if not, why not? And so, uh, you know, it's just finding those little things that, that bring a little bit of joy and happiness into your life. Uh, and be, being, it's even a, a bonus if you can share those with other people who you care about, uh, you know, like in my case, my kids or, or you know, other people in my family, um, you know, I, I want to share those things with them and uh, make positive memories that we can cling on to later on in life. Definitely. That's beautiful. And I love the art. I love the, there's like a ribbon as the background there with the soldier, yeah. you know, on the hill. That's, that's wow. Really cool stuff, Scott. Thank you so much for sharing that. And so, I hear my kids hollering down there. So I think we're, we're about out of time. You probably know the feeling when you're doing a podcast and you just hear the kids just going nuts and you're like, Oh yep. yeah. <laughs> Podcasting sure. and being a dad to toddlers. It's, it's a, that that's resiliency right there. Holy that cow. is resiliency. Yeah. <laughs> if you can do that, you can do just about anything. Right. <laughs> that's what prepped me for that combat medic school. Okay. There you go. <laughs> All right, Scott. So, Love the book. Book is called Surviving Son. Absolutely blown away by this book, Scott. Um, blown away by your character, your transparency, uh, and the story of your brother's bravery and protecting 
his soldiers protecting this country and, and what he was willing to do to protect us. And so I just want to thank you so much for, for sitting down and talking to us. I know it's, it's hard to talk about it, but I, I also know it's honoring um, your brother in doing that. So thank you. So we're going to, we're going to end Scott with three questions here, and these are a little bit more personal. Okay. All right. So question one, when you returned from your deployment, what did you think was more different, you or the world around you? Uh, you know, at first, I thought it was the world around me. I, I found it very difficult to relate to uh, other people, uh, the civilians that I'd interact with at the store or coworkers, things like that. Um, it just was different. And for some reason, I thought that everyone else had changed and that I was still the same person. Um, you know, years later, hindsight is twenty twenty, And so when I look back at things, I realize that it wasn't everyone else who changed. Um, you know, obviously everyone changes a little bit, but um, I was the one who experienced such a dramatic change. And uh, I just didn't see it at the time. But at, at the time, it was definitely, it was definitely me thinking that everyone else had changed. Isn't it funny how that happens? Mm-hmm. You know, and then when you realize that you change that much to where you don't even see the world the same anymore, I mean, that's that is eye, an eye opening moment. It is. All right. So, question number two I read the book and I listened to the audiobook, both fantastic. My question about the audiobook I felt like speaking the book would, would have to be hard to do. Right. Um, because you're trying to sound professional, you're trying to, to articulate well, but you're also reading out loud things that were already hard enough to just write, to yeah. write down on paper. So my question is, out of your audiobook, was there a section that you really struggled to get through verbally to make that recording, you know, not sound like it was emotionally getting to you? Yeah, it was somewhere between chapter one and chapter 10 that I was having the most trouble with. <laughs> because I realized as I was recording just how terrible of a reader I am. And I, I was reading, uh, so the way I had it set up, I, I had the, uh, like a PDF version of the book on my computer screen. And I had this, this microphone set up that I have here and I was just reading off of the screen. And for whatever reason, my brain was just interpreting words differently. And I'd realized I was reading it and I just suck at reading things out loud. It just is not something that I'm all that good at. So uh, I had to do so many retakes and re-recordings of everything. Um, but the hardest part for me was uh, honestly the, the part that we talked about earlier, um, the, the day that my brother was killed. Um, and we didn't get into it so much uh, in, in this episode here, but I do talk about it in the book where I actually go through uh, the mission that he was on and what took place that day. And um, where I got all of that information was I, I was able to get the, the uh, sworn statements from the soldiers who were on that mission uh, about what had taken place. And I, I was able to kind of compile all of that together and piece it all together to figure out uh, a timeline of events and, and what had had actually taken place so uh, when I started reading that it was that was the most difficult because that was like it was like actually being there even though I never actually was there on that particular mission um, it it felt like I was there and and it was really hard for me to to read that particular section 
Definitely. Okay. There, there were a few parts where I, I could tell it was harder to read, but to be honest, I, I really liked hearing it from you um, with your voice. It, it, it really, I don't know. There was just something different about it. it there really was like, even the part, it, it felt like I was there with you, you know, and, and there are certain parts that I could tell were hard for you to read. And it just, it made it, it, it made that connection to your story that much more powerful, you know? Yeah, for sure. And, and for people who might be authors themselves or might be interested in doing an audiobook, I would definitely recommend doing it yourself uh, as, as the author, uh, especially if it's a um, biographical type of a, a, a book where you're talking about your own life and your own experiences and stuff, because it, it just has that much more personal connection to it. And, and you can, I've noticed, I, you can actually feel the uh, the emotion from the author just in the tone of their voice and, and everything like that. So I, I, I just prefer it that way when I listen to audiobooks. Um, you know, I know that they're not going to be as clean and polished as a professional voiceover type person. Um, but honestly, I, I think it, it comes off better with uh, the that kind of unpolished uh, sound to it. Absolutely. You did a fantastic job. Appreciate that. All right. So last question here, Scott. At what point did you feel your brother's your brother's spirit with you felt him with you the most? What moment did that happen? Um, you know, th this is actually a, a strange moment that that took place, um, and it was the 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 night. Uh, so the uh, few hours after he, he had been killed that night, um, I was in the shower at at Bagram Air Base and um, I was all alone there's no one else in the, the room with me and I remember just leaning my head against the wall pounding my hand on the on the wall of the shower and just yelling out why Stephen why and it wasn't like I was talking to him like I was expecting a response or anything like that but I think I was actually calling out to God asking God why would you take him why Stephen why now uh, he was 25 years old. You couldn't have given him a little more time. Like I, it was, I was having it out with God in that moment, I, I think. And I, I was just trying to wrap my head around it, but I felt very shortly after this, this, uh, this incident, I, I felt this strange calm come over me and it made me realize that no matter what the response was, even if God himself came down and stood next to me in that shower and said, Hey, here's my reasons. I don't think any of it would have been something that I would, I would have been okay with, right? Like losing my brother, it's like, that's, that's not going to be okay. Um, but I knew that something positive was going to come from this. Um, I know that uh, as a Christian, I know that God's plan is, is, uh, is good. And it, it's gonna uh, have a good outcome. And uh, yeah, sometimes bad things happen to good people, but good things will come of it um, if we let them. And so uh, it was just the strange, calm feeling that I had uh, in that moment where I was like, okay, things are going to be okay. They're not, they're not okay now, but at some point they're going to be okay. And uh, I just have to have faith and know that, uh, that they will get better. So um, it was, I think in that moment that, that things just, um, kind of clicked in me and, and said, mm. okay, th things are going to be okay. Um, you know, 
I had I did waffle back and forth where I had my moments where where I kind of forgot about that and I I, I wasn't okay and and I didn't have that calmness about me anymore. But um, but it's something I still think back to and, and that I've never had a feeling like this come over me. Uh, so it was almost like a life. spiritual feeling. It was powerful. For sure. It was very powerful. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. And I do remember that part in the book and yeah, it was just, yeah. What an incredible, uh, it, it was almost like you emotionally just let it all out. And then, you know, spiritually it was just like, he kind of, you know, had his arm around you in a sense, you know? Yeah. Wow. Holy cow. Okay. Well, you got through the questions. Those are the ones that, you know, came to my mind as I was reading and listening to your book that I wanted to ask you about. Sure. Um, so Scott, I just want to tell you, you're an amazing author. You're an amazing podcaster and you're an incredible husband, father, brother, veteran. You're just such an inspirational guy who is showing us that there is life after tragedy and you're doing it in a way that honors your brother Steven's legacy forever. And I just want to thank you for being you, for putting your story out there and giving us that hope and encouragement that there is more to life, even after hitting one of the lowest points ever. So thank you so much, Scott. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to share my story with uh, you and your audience. Absolutely. And I'd like to end with any final thoughts you have uh, and any way that folks can connect with you and find your book. Yeah, sure. So kind of final thoughts. Uh, I just like to uh, kind of piggyback off of what you were just saying there. Um, you know, anyone who's out there struggling with whatever it is that they're struggling with in life, whether it's a loss of a loved one, uh, you know, rocky marriage, whatever it is you're going through. Uh, at this point, you have survived 100% of the, the bad days that you've had in your life. And you'll continue to survive those those days going forward. So don't give up. Don't quit on yourself. Don't quit on your family. Don't quit on the people around you. Uh, keep on going through whatever it is you're going through and things do get better. Uh, you just have to let them get better. Um, so, so that's kind of my uh, kind of closing thought. As far as uh, connecting uh, my podcast, the Drive On Podcast, um, you can find at the at driveonpodcast.com or on uh, you know, any place where you listen to the podcast, just search for drive on podcast, you should be able to find it there. Um, and the book, uh, so again, surviving son is available on Amazon in pretty much any format you could think of, uh, the ebook, uh, the Kindle version, the, um, paperback hardcover, and, uh, now the, the audio book, like you mentioned, uh, are all available there on Amazon. Uh, and if anyone wants a signed copy of the book, you can go to survivingsonbook.com and I'm, I'd be happy to send a signed copy uh, to anyone who's, who wants one. So, uh, so thanks again, uh, Josh, for having me on and uh, letting me share my story with you in the audience. 